friends. My name is Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Zach Slagle about his book, Fearing Others, Putting God First. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Zach Slagle is Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church, Upper Marlboro in Maryland. Hey there, Zach. Thank you so much for joining us for the podcast today. Good to be here. Thank you. I have been meaning to have this conversation based on your devotional entitled Fearing Others, Putting God First for a long while. And I'm so thankful the time has finally come where I can have this discussion, particularly for the benefit of our listeners. So before we get started in our conversation today, would you spend a few minutes sharing why you wanted to write a book on this topic? Yeah, I think it's it's one of those themes in scripture that can oftentimes be overlooked. I know that I, I did earlier on in my Christian life, and then through different writings, it kind of popped out, and the Lord just used seeing that to address that in my life and help me to begin to see it and address it and grow in it. So the fear of man is something I've seen and battled with and am, am battling with in my own life, but I've been greatly helped by God's word and the writings of others. So when the opportunity came to write on it, I was thankful for that opportunity personally, just to be able to dig into scripture for my own benefit. And if the Lord saw fit to hopefully be helpful to others that might read that. I wonder if you could help us to think biblically about what it means to fear others and how we might diagnose if fear of man has become a pervasive problem in our lives. Yeah, if you trace kind of the, the theme of the fear of man in scripture, or even the idea of fear itself, it's a it's a pretty big theme in scripture. And in one sense, fear is not always bad, even as an emotion. So if like, I think if, if you're walking through the Sahara Desert and a lion jumps out of the bushes growling at you, you know, fear is not a bad thing. Fear is the emotion that says you need to run. So it can be life preserving and a good thing at times. But when we think about this sinful idea or the biblical idea of the fear of man, it really comes down to, I think, an issue of worship. And this is where I've been really helped by Ed Welch in his writings. He wrote a, a helpful book called When People Are Big and God is Small. And what he what he really argues in that book biblically is that the fear of man is when people or their opinions of us or what they might do to us really take the place of God in our life. And I think it's a really helpful way of thinking about that, that at its root, it's a worship issue. It's an issue of idolatry. So diagnosing idolatry or the issue of the, the fear of man really requires the help of the work of the Holy Spirit. It requires the help of the light of scripture, not only kind of showing us the path to walk in, but the the scriptures kind of examining us, as the writer of Hebrews says. And we need the help of close friends. I think the Lord works through close friendships and relationships where that is exposed. We begin to see that in our in our lives. So I think it was Martin Luther. I can't remember where he said this, but he had a helpful quote on this issue of idolatry where he says, an idol is something that we are essentially willing to sin in order to get. 
or that we are willing to sin if we don't get it. And I think it's kind of a helpful diagnostic question for kind of identifying where idolatry or the fear of man might kind of pop up in our lives. So I was talking to someone the other day about this, the text in James 4. We were kind of working through a an issue of a, a quarrel. And so we, we went to James 4, and in James 4, 1 through 10, he talks about what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not this, that you have your passions or your desires? Some translations will say your desires are at war within you. And if you keep reading in James 4, 1 through 10, the issue is not wanting something or desiring something or being passionate about something in and of itself. It's not that wanting something is sinful or being passionate is sinful in and of itself. The issue becomes when I have to have that. I can't live without that. So when our desires kind of rise to the level of worship or they begin to define us, I love this, I need this so much that it begins to define me, we're letting that object or the thing that we want take the place of God because only God is worthy of that worship or adoration or love or trust that defines us. So that's why I think James later on in James 4, 4, uh, calls the person an adulterer. It's kind of this spiritual adultery where that love and affection, trust and worship, which was meant for God, goes to that certain object or that affirmation of others, whatever that might be that we're idolizing. So we kind of hold that with a closed fist. So that those are some diagnostic things I would look to in order to identify that in my heart or the person I'm talking with. A lot of it comes down to when we replace God as the center of our universe, and we tend to put ourselves there, and we become self-centered or self-focused, a lot of the way that we view life then becomes through the lens of me. How does this affect me? How are people seeing me? And you can kind of filter through any interaction in your day or what's going on in your day with that kind of framework. So when you find yourself preoccupied with any interaction thinking, I wonder what they thought of my comment there. I wonder if they're thinking I'm good looking. I wonder how, if they're thinking I'm as smart as they are. I wonder if they view my comments as important in this business meeting. I wonder, you know, any, anything that we kind of put through the lens of how is this going to affect me? How is this going to make me viewed? Those types of questions doesn't always point to the fear of man, but they're often signs that that's what's going on. And so those types of questions where it's very me focused are often symptoms of the fear of man that are worth us kind of tracing down uh, down to the heart issue of, of why why do I care so much about how I'm viewed in this situation or what might happen to me and then it's worth kind of praying about thinking about with other people just to see if okay is this actually at its root the fear of man is this actually at its root me caring more about what this person thinks more than what God thinks about me in this in this moment. Yeah, that's so good. Thank you for helping us think through that a bit more. Uh, I really appreciated that you open up the devotional by reflecting on the idea that, quote, we obey what we fear. I wonder if you can expand on that idea and help us better understand what our fears reveal about what we value or worship. Yeah, we were going through First Samuel as a church several years ago, and I think it was really helpful for me just to see Israel's first king, Saul. If you want a case study on the fear of man, Saul is your prime example. Because on the exterior, one of the first things that we see about Saul is that he's 
he's head and shoulders above people. He kind of, if you're looking at a crowd, he is literally taller than most people in the crowd. He's got these long flowing locks. So on the outside, he's good looking. He's, he's tall. He's handsome. He's impressive. And it kind of fits the issue in the heart of what's going on in Israel is that they're looking for a ruler that looks like the rulers of the nations around them. So they're not looking for necessarily a God-fearing, godly ruler. They just want to look like the nations around them. And so Saul is kind of God-giving, I think, what the nations want. Kind of a Romans 1, you're giving, he's giving them what, they, what they're wanting in their rejection of him. And then you see him as a contrast then later on with King David, who does who does fear God. So it's a good case study to look at. Bringing him, him up as an example is you can look at a couple of places in 1 Samuel. So for instance, 1 Samuel 13 is a good example of where Saul is giving specific instructions and the enemy is approaching. People start to scatter. He begins to, the thing that's driving him is not the clear command that he had received from God through the prophet Samuel. But it's, okay, what are people thinking about me? The, the enemy is coming in. My soldiers are scattering. I'm sure they're thinking that I'm not a good leader. So he panics. He takes matters into his own hand. He, he offers the sacrifice that Sam, Samuel said to wait for until he got there. And he just does it because he's afraid of what the people think about him. And that ultimately reveals his heart. And he's rejected as, as the king. You fast forward, First Samuel 15, another example of this where he is controlled by what people think about him. Again, he's given clear instructions from God to destroy a nation, but he he listens to the people. They preserve the best of that nation, and he kind of hides behind, well, I'm, I, I did this to save it for later. We're going to use this for later. And and really, in the end, Samuel confronts him, and he, and he exposes what's going on in, in Saul's heart, which is he was more concerned about what people thought about him rather than what God thought about him. And that kind of shows this idea that at its root, again, it's this worship, this idea of worship, that what rules us is what's biggest in our mind and in our hearts. And in in Saul's case, it was God was small and the opinion of people was huge. And that's what was controlling him. So one of the ways that we can kind of diagnose or or find where the fear of man is is in our hearts is when the rubber meets the road, what is it that controls my decision-making? Is it God? Is it his word? Is it what he thinks about me? Or is it what you think about me? What people think about me? Is that what's driving my decision-making process? And so I think that's what's going on in scripture. And it's a good place to kind of look into our own hearts and ask God to examine us as well. You also wrote on day seven of the devotional a bit about Proverbs 14, 26, which says, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. How does this verse apply to the problem of fearing others? Yeah, I think sometimes when you read a verse, like when you hear the scripture's theme of fearing God, we tend to think of this servile, cowering fear uh, before God. But that's what that's what makes Proverbs 14, 26 so striking is that he connects the fear of the Lord with having strong confidence. For me, or even one of the things I, I pray for my kids is I, I don't want them to be cocky. I don't want us to, to be cocky. I want, I want them to be confident young men. And so it's really helpful that Proverbs 20, 14, 26 is saying that biblical confidence is not rooted in our abilities, our being better or smarter or stronger than the other person, but it's rooted in fearing God, knowing God. When we have a knee-knocking reverence of God, wow, look how awesome he is. 
then the, simply put, we're not overly impressed with ourselves. We're not overly impressed or intimidated by others. So just kind of a, just an example of this. I mean, even yesterday I was asked to come into the, we live in Maryland. And so I had the opportunity to come in and give the prayer of invocation at the state house where our, our Senate meets. And, you know, when you walk up to the state house in Annapolis, there's, it's this big building with big columns. You walk into the place where our senators are meeting to do business and they're important people that you see on TV. And you can, I mean, I, I felt the fear of man in my heart because it's just kind of structured that way. And so I remember before I went into the building yesterday reading, I read Matthew 10 and it was helpful for me just as a reminder, because in Matthew 10, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and that one of you will fall into the ground, fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. So fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than the sparrows. So you have Jesus kind of puts this big vision of God up front, and then he says, in light of that, what do you have to fear about others? Like God. God knows you. He cares for you. Not a hair falls from your head without him knowing it. And so it really puts the people or the circumstances that you're entering into in perspective. And that's where our confidence should lie. So it was, it was just going to help a reminder, even yesterday for me going into that prayer. I think that many of us can relate to having a fear of failure. And something that you talk about in the book, you identify fear of failure as one way that fearing others can manifest in our lives. You write that when, quote, we assume the results of a God-given task are up to us, we panic. And yes, I definitely resonated with that statement. So how do the scriptures change the way we think about our insufficiencies and ultimately our fears of failing? One of the memories, even early on in our marriage, that this kind of sticks out to me in, in my own life is like, I met my wife in seminary. I was heading into the ministry and you have, you know, there's, there's a lot of risk that goes into that. There's not, you know, you don't know what your future is going to hold, but when we were getting married, I'm thinking, okay, this not only affects me now, it also affects my wife. It affects my family and there's going to be risk in this. And I remember wrestling with that, with taking on that responsibility of a family. It's not just my decision, but this decision to go into the ministry affects them too. And, and I'm not given guarantees of what tomorrow holds. I'm given guarantees about who God is, but I'm not given guarantees about what tomorrow holds. I remember wrestling through that with my wife and something that she said that was really helpful for me was just, you know, she said, I would rather take the risk and trust the Lord and fail rather than play it safe and kind of waste our lives and not do things that we think would be honoring to the Lord. That reminder of what my wife was given was just, it kind of put steel, steel in my spine to say, you know what, like we serve a big God who is good. And we would rather live our lives taking risks and failing rather than, you know, playing it safe and, and not. So, you know, I think we as a church, we recently went through the book of Ecclesiastes. And this this was this idea of wanting control and not always having control of tomorrow is really brought up in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I think that when we remember that God is God and we're not, it doesn't make us lazy. It actually helps us know what our limits are. And accept our limits. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is really hitting at is like, don't forget that God is God and you're not. <laughs> so one of the ways that the writer of Ecclesiastes gets at that is he uses this word Havel. It's translated as vanity or meaningless or vapor 38 times 
so it's talking about the nature of life being a vapor. And what I think what the writer of Ecclesiastes is getting at is that it's reminding us, he's reminding us that life is ungraspable. If you try to grasp vapor, good luck, you know, and he's saying life is like that. There are certain things that you just can't grasp with your mind. There are certain things that you can't grasp with your muscle and, and, and work into submission. And if you try, you're, you're going to be perennially frustrated. And so the message of Ecclesiastes is not one of despair. It's one of freedom that when we stop trying to be God and let God be God, it's then that we're actually set free to eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil. So it's not a message of despair. It's actually a message of freedom and enjoyment. So I think when we fear God, when we let God be God, we can work our jobs, we can do evangelism, we can do ministry, and we can leave the results to God. And that really takes a load off of our shoulders that we weren't meant to bear. I think of First Corinthians 3 when Paul says, I planted Apollos water, but God gives the growth. And that just gives a lot of freedom for us. I think scripture helps us then begin to say, okay, that's the case. I don't need to hide my my insufficiencies. I don't need to lie about my weakness. I can actually accept my weakness. You know, if you read through Second Corinthians, Paul boasts in his weakness because it's a platform in which God displays his strength, where God displays his godness, and we are set free to trust him and with his outcomes. And that's, I think, that's the way we're meant to live. And it's hard because of our sinfulness, but I think that's the way we were originally made and, and meant to live. And there's a freedom that comes with that. Now, on day 11 of the devotional, you discuss the topic of defensiveness and being quick to take offense at what other people say to us or about us. What are some questions that we could reflect on to gauge our level of defensiveness in our personal relationships? Yeah, this is one of those, <laughs> this is one of those questions that stings for me because I think uh, I see it in my own life. I think, I think at its root, defensiveness is pride because I have a vision of myself that I want others to share. And when they don't share that vision or they critique that, they're going to meet my defensiveness. If I'm using biblical language, I would just say it's pride. So I found questions like, okay, am I defensive when a person confronts my sin? So is my first response to that confrontation, that loving confrontation of my sin is my first response, one of defensiveness, you know, blaming or uh, watering it down or pointing out their hypocrisy or, you know, or whatnot. So am I defensive when they confront my sin? Do I immediately deny or kind of blame shift? Do I feel disrespected or slighted when I'm not noticed at school or at work or in the home? I feel overlooked in that sense. How do I respond when I'm not recognized? for something that I've done or I'm not thanked. Because again, I think we're trying to, we have this vision of ourselves or what we've done and we want others to agree with us in that. How do I respond when, you know, when I'm wronged? Do I feel disrespected or insulted? And a lot of the way we answer those questions are going to pinpoint whether or not there's that fear of man in, in our hearts that we're trying to promote this vision of ourselves that we want others to share with us. You write, quote, those who fear men are controlled by what others think of them. So when their image is threatened, their knee-jerk reaction is to defend that image as if their life depended on it. Mm-hmm. And that was an ouch, but a good kind of ouch. And so I wonder, can you help us to think about when we recognize that that's something that we do struggle with, that we are quick to be offended or to take things personally, 
what are some steps that we could take to try to address that issue? One is just to remember that if that's what's going on in my heart in that moment, that I'm ignoring what the God of the universe thinks of me or says is true about me or how he relates to me. I'm diminishing that. So you have language like in John 15 that he calls us a friend or in Hebrews 2 says that he's not ashamed to call us his brother. You have Psalm 8 that says that the creator of the universe is is mindful of us. So in the moment when I'm trying to defend this vision of myself, I'm essentially saying, I don't really care what God thinks about me. What matters is what this person says about me. So we diminish the the truth about God and what he says about me that really should has the potential to set me free. And I am enslaved then to needing this person to view me this way. And it's really a miserable way to live. And I think you, when you read through the Gospels, you really see this. In the, if you take Jesus, who is not a slave to the fear of man, and the people around him, even the Pharisees recognize that. And you contrast that with the Pharisees. There's several times in the Gospels where we're told that the Pharisees or the, or the, or the religious leaders, their problem with Jesus is that he's a threat to the image of themselves that they have worked hard to build. So, for instance, in John 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, amazing miracle, undeniable miracle. Uh, but the, you know, the, the religious leaders get together and they're like, listen, we got we to get rid of this guy because if he keeps doing things like this, we're going to lose our place in this nation. And so they feel threatened and they're defensive to the point where they're willing to crucify Jesus. Or in Mark, Mark 15, uh, I think it's in Mark 15, where it says that the reason they crucified Jesus was, was out of envy. So it's, it's just a really a miserable, bitter, fearful way to live. But on the flip side of that, Jesus is the model example of he knows how his father views him. He, you know, you think of his baptism when he comes out of the water and, and, and the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he lives in the light of how the father views him, loves him, accepts him. And so that makes him the boldest He's confident he is, he's free to give himself away and he's not defined by the critiques of others. So he can be mocked and he can be rejected. He can be ultimately crucified and, and he's able to endure those things because he's confident his joy is rooted in how the father views him. And so he's able to, for the joy that is set before him, endure the cross, which is the model for us to live. And I think, I think, just one other thing. I think in, in Proverbs 19.11, he says, good sense makes one slow to anger and it's his glory to overlook an offense. And I think part of the reason that the writer of Proverbs says that it's it's our glory to overlook an offense is because it reflects something of the character of God. You know, in God in his mercy, his grace overlooks our offenses because those sins have been put upon Christ and punished in Christ. When we overlook an offense, it's our glory because we're better reflecting something of the character of God. But again, the only way that we can do that is if our confidence, if our identity is rooted in not what you think of me or say of me, but what in God has said and what he thinks of me.
you know, we have explored some tough challenges in this conversation so far, some tough reflections. And of course, I really had a bunch of stuff that I wanted to talk about because this devotional is so rich. And so I had to choose wisely. And I'm not sure if I chose all the best questions. But I just want to let the listener know that there's definitely a lot more meat in this book than what we are able to cover in this short conversation. But that being said, I want to just take a minute to talk about the fact that after hearing all of this, right, some of us may be tempted to feel really discouraged. Maybe mm. all of the self-examination and introspection that we do on this topic really just makes us feel like we're never going to change or we don't even know, okay, mm. well, I see that that's a problem in my life, but I've tried to not care about what people think so much. And it's not working. So I, I want to have you talk a bit about that. Uh, on day 16 of the devotional, you have a chapter entitled Relax. You're not the expert on you. Can you explain what you meant by that statement and help us to think carefully about the nature of introspection? Yeah, I think you're right. It's definitely one of those things that it's a process. I think by God's grace, I've seen growth in my own life, but I'm by no means where I hope to be. It's an ongoing fight. As, as are many areas of sanctification in my life. So I think, I think the, the, the helpfulness of remembering that we're not the expert on ourselves, God, I mean, God knows us better than we know ourselves. I mean, he, even the, one of the scriptures we were mentioning earlier, that, that he knows the number of hairs on our head. I don't know how many hairs are on my head, but if one of the hairs of my head fall, fall out today, he knows it. And he knows what's going on in my heart. He knows what's going on in my mind. And that's, that's really helpful and, and comforting. So I think that scripture is not anti-introspection. I think there's a there's a good place for us to know what's going on in our lives. So you have Proverbs 4, which talks about watching over your heart, but it is the wellspring of life. You have 2 Corinthians 13, 5, which says that we, you know, examine yourself, see whether or not you're in the faith. So there is a there's a place, there's a good place for self-examination. There is a good place for introspection. But I think sometimes that veers off into we overdo it when I feel like I need to know everything about myself. And what's going on is my need to know everything is I'm trying to control. I'm trying to be God. And so I think I need to know everything because I'm trying to control everything. So this is where Proverbs, again, is really helpful. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Why? Because we don't know everything as, as God does. So it, it's not good for us to try to lean on or trust in our own understanding. So I remember reading David's prayer in Psalm 139 verses 23 through 24. And, and this prayer was really helpful for me because I did struggle with over introspection. I was falling into that trap of trying to take the place of God in knowing everything and controlling everything. And it, it just, again, it makes you, whenever you try to be God, it just makes you miserable. So David prays in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So I remember reading that prayer and thinking, okay, if God is good and if I believe he cares for me, I can pray this prayer and trust him that if there's something that is offensive in me that I don't see, if there's a blind spot that I'm unaware of, that he will show me. As David prayed, this is a biblical prayer, 
show me. He says, see if there's any way in me and it's offensive and lead me in the way everlasting. So I can trust that the Lord will bring to light the blind spot that I need to see. If I pray that prayer with an open heart, willing to do, you know, to respond in repentance when God reveals it, I can pray that prayer and then put my head in the pillow at night and trust the Lord because God can use his word. God can use other people in the church. God can use the ministry of his Holy Spirit in a, in a myriad of ways to, to bring to light the offensive way in me that needs to be revealed. And, and because he's good and because I, I know he cares for me and knows me better than I know myself, I don't have to try to be God. I can trust God to, to reveal what I need to see and then just keep moving on. I think of Paul, even in Romans, when he's talking about, you know, the fact that he doesn't do what he wants to do, and he does what he doesn't want to do. And he says, you know, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I think sometimes that's where we see this inner tension of wanting to grow and to change, but the fact that we still wrestle with the flesh. And we can kind of say what Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death and then despair because we can't do it ourselves. Or we can continue on with that statement and complete it like he did, where his own introspection and his own unrighteousness actually leads him to rejoice in the fact that thanks be to God that we have Jesus Christ and his righteousness. He is my deliverer. And so even my own struggles and unrighteousness and what I find in self-reflection can spur me on to worship, just like you talked about, and fear of the Lord and reverence for him. Yeah. And even you reminded me of a text in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, the David writes, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And I I think w- one of the ways that that I think gets played out in our lives is that if the Lord <laughs> kind of pulled back the, the veil and showed me the depth of my sinfulness all at once, I would just be destroyed, overwhelmed. And I think that he remembers our frame. Like he's going to, he's going to, as a loving father, he's going to discipline us, but he's going to do that as he fe- sees fit in his timing. He's tender with us. He, he remembers that we're, we're dust. Uh, so he's going to do that in his, his schedule. And we can trust him with that because he is a, he's that compassionate father that Psalm 103 reminds us of. I also wanted to highlight day 23 in the devotional. When you encourage readers, I thought this was great. You say, quote, compete to love, not to be loved. On that day, you guide our attention to Romans 12, 10, and 15, which reads, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And while we may be familiar with those verses from Romans, we might not understand what they have to do with the problem of fearing others. So can you connect those dots for us? Yeah, I I think even the simple command in Romans 12, where he says, love one another, we kind of gloss over that and think, well, that's simple. And and in one sense, it is. But when when you look at our heart condition, it becomes a little more complicated. I, I think a lot of this comes back to the very beginning of Genesis, because if you look in Genesis one and two, Adam and Eve creating God's image, they are in the perfect relationship with God. They're in the perfect relationship with each other. They're naked and unashamed. There's nothing between Adam and Eve that would hinder their relationship. They're not in competition with each other. They're not, they can be naked and unashamed because there is nothing to be ashamed of. They, they know God 
They know God's love for them. Their identity is rooted in what God says about them. And so they're able to give themselves away freely because that's their identity. There is no uh, sinful comparison, again, because their value is based upon what God says. So they're, they're actually free to love, as Paul commands in Romans 12, because of their identity being rooted in God. So the problem with all this, and this is the connection to the fear of man, the problem is that in Genesis 3, is that when Satan comes in the garden, the root of the temptation is one of pride. He's saying, eat this fruit, and if you eat this fruit, the God's not good, he's holding out on you, and and, and he knows that, that, that real life really happens when you're God, when you put yourself on the throne. And, and so he... Adam, Adam and Eve believe that lie, they eat of the fruit. But what they're doing is they're pushing God off the throne. They're pushing God out of the center of their life and they're replacing it with their self. They're putting their self at the center. They're putting their self in the place of God. And so when that happens, now their identity is no longer rooted in God's love and what God says about them and God's grace. Now their identity is, and now, now they're alone. So now their identity and their value is rooted in how they compare to each other. So this is the performance-based value system. So, you know, the Super Bowl's coming up pretty soon. And if you ask, okay, how do you know who the better team is? Well, you know who the better team is by who wins, who who has the most points. And so these two teams, the the, the Eagles and the Chiefs are, they're competing. They're they're not they're not free to love each other in the Romans twelve sense because they're both wanting to be the better team. So it's competitive. Comparison is by nature competitive. It's it's saying my value, my identity is dependent upon you being under me, you being less than me. You know, the Eagles are not gonna just hand the ball over to the Chiefs and say, you know, we love you. You go ahead and score a touchdown on us because that <laughs> it's it's a competition. So we live Ever since Genesis 3, we live in a performance-based value system. And when, when we live that way, my value is based upon how I compare with you. And I'm no longer free to love you because you're the competition. So what the gospel does is it puts us back in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We once again begin to know God's love, God's acceptance through Christ. We reappropriate the identity that we were meant to have. Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, and we begin by God's grace to finally be free to give ourselves away in love. Because you're no longer the competition. You're my brother or sister in Christ, and we're both sinners saved by grace. And now, I, I, that's why I love that idea of uh, outdo one another. So it's the only competition that's left is like, I'm so loved by God, I want to love, I'm going to serve you more. And the, the other person is, no, I'm going to outserve you. And it's this desire to give myself away for your good. And you're trying to give yourself away for my good. And then, you know, the two are able to really love in that way, rather than being controlled by what you think of me. And I need to outdo you in that sense. We have time for a couple of more questions. So I want to ask you, what are some practical steps that a listener could take today to address the fear of man they find themselves wrestling with? If you're like me, when you identify something like this, uh, an area of sin in your life that you, you, you desperately want to just be done with, we tend to look for something quick and extraordinary that will just solve the problem. And... <laughs> My answer is, I think what I'm learning in my own life and what I would, would commend is just the normal means of grace. 
because really what's going on in the fear of man is the solution to the fear of man is to know God better. It's to fear God more than we fear others. So the, the normal means of grace of reading our, our Bible and, and being in close relationships with other believers and being in prayer are, are the normal means of grace. So I would commend to that person, you know, strive to know God. At the root, if the solution to the fear of man is to know God, well, then strive to know God by reading the scriptures on a daily basis where you can get to know God as he reveals himself in his word. Uh, if you're not a part of a local church, I would commend that person to join a local church become a member of a local church where you are regularly sitting under the preached word of God, where you hear the prayers of his people, where you're in close covenant relationships with others in that church, where they're, they're going to help you, you know, close relationships as a way of God, God uses those close relationships to reveal sin, but also to encourage us and to have friends and family to help us fight that sin. And then I just, again, keep praying, ask God to reveal the fear of man in your life. Ask him to help you to grow in the fear of God. I, I try to pray again, Proverbs fourteen twenty six for myself, for my kids, for my family in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence as a refuge for his children, that God would root out the, the fear of man in our lives, that God would replace it with a, a bigger vision of who he is and replace the fear of man with the fear of God that we might know that freedom. So just ask the Lord. For that, and then just be patient. It's a process. We will one day be glorified, but from the time where we're at now until that future glorification, it's a process, and sanctification is a process, and we need to keep fighting, but be patient in the process and trust the Lord in that. Awesome. Well, before we finish off with our last question, I want to let the listener know that if you are interested in learning more about this book, Fearing Others, Putting God First, you can scroll down to the show notes, click the link there, and that will take you to a page on IBCD's website where you can access all of that information. But for now, Zach, I want to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening today who struggles with fearing others. What would you say to this person to encourage them with the hope and help of Jesus Christ? I think I'd say two things. First of all, I want to start with what Jesus says in Luke 12. In Luke 12, 4 through 7, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do to you. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than the sparrows. So I think this is where it all begins. It begins with with knowing God. And and so whether you are a Christian listening to this or you are not yet a follower of Christ listening to this, this podcast, I would say it really begins with having a right relationship with God. And the good news of the gospel is that there is a God who is greater than any of us. He is our creator and he is good. And we're going to give an account to him uh, one day for how we have lived our lives. And the, the problem that we all face is that we've, we've all sinned. We've all rejected God's authority over our lives. And the wages of sin is death. And that's, that's our greatest problem. Our greatest problem in life is not the, the, the temporary circumstances of needing that job or finding that spouse or getting through this, this predicament that we're in. 
the greatest problem that all of us face is our being at odds with a holy God. And one of the greatest things that we have is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we failed to live. He died on the cross in our place for our sins, for anyone who had turned from their sins and trust in him. And, and because Christ rose from the dead on the third day, he now, he now stands to offer us that new life, that forgiveness. And so really, when you, when you remember the gospel, that is for, for anyone who would trust in Christ, the greatest problem, the biggest thing that we need to be afraid of, our enmity with God, the wrath of God has been taken care of in Christ. And so this is the starting point that when we realize what God has done for us in Christ, what else do we have to be afraid of? It puts everything in perspective. And so that's, this is, this is where it starts. It starts with a right relationship with God through, through Jesus Christ, and then putting all other fears in the perspective of that. And the other thing I would just encourage the listener with is what the, the writer of Psalm 8 says. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So you have this big creator God. And then the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. And again, um, just thinking about and remembering that when we're desperate and we clamor for what people think about us, remember that the creator of the universe who is far greater than the temporary opinions of transient men and women. Remember that God in Christ is mindful of us, that he, he, he loves us, he cares for us. And that's the one opinion that matters is that of our creator. And that is where we find freedom from the fear of man. Thank you so much, Zach, for those words of encouragement. If there's someone listening today who wants to get connected with you and your ministry, is there somewhere where they can go online to learn more about your church and what you yeah. do? Yeah. So I'm a uh, I'm one of our pastors of a local church. It's called First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro, uh, which is a town about 30 miles southeast of Washington, D.C. So they can go to our website at www.fbcum.org, fbcum.org. And you can learn about more of our ministry there. If you're in the area, we'd love to see you, meet you, visit with you. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to discuss this book and this topic with us. I have been so blessed by your reflections in the devotional and then also what you've shared today. So I'm really thankful that you took the time to be with us today and, and hope that the listeners are blessed as well. Thank you, Christine. Very thankful and honored to be a part of the podcast today. Thanks for your ministry. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.